And um, yeah, I'm glad to be here again, uh, though it's, it's really difficult to get here from Creve Hall on a Titans day. They just would not let me get over to East Nashville. And then when I finally got across the Jefferson City Bridge, then they wanted me to turn around and get on the highway and not be able to come up here. But I finally persuaded them. Don't you know who I am? I've got a, I got a sermon to preach. Um, so anyway, I'm glad to be here again. We are continuing our study of First Peter, and I imagine the text is there in the little worship folder, so you can be looking at that. But I was thinking, you know, really the heart of what we're going to talk about today, and what I think is the heart of what Peter is saying in the, in the next section we have here in First Peter chapter 1, is that the gospel is bigger than you think. And in some ways that sounds kind of like a cliche thing to say, but I, I think as we get into this section and the various points that Peter is making here, that's really the theme that holds it all together. The gospel is bigger than you think. And I don't know, maybe you've had an experience where you thought something was really cool and then you realize later on that it was a much bigger deal than you thought. I I tell you, my favorite story about that uh, concerns Etta James. You guys know Etta James? So one of the cool things I got to do back when I first moved here is work at this recording studio. And uh, it was run by a guy named Norbert Putnam who had been part of the Muscle Shoals group, and then he you know, played with Elvis. Anyway, the cool thing about being at that studio is all of these kind of old-timer people were always coming around the studio looking for you know, a way to rejuvenate their career, and he'd always give them free studio time. So I got to work with all these awesome people. And I remember one time you know, working with Etta James, I always tell people one of my greatest claims to fame is that Steve Cropper played my guitar on an Etta James record. <laughs> you know, that's cool. John, you know, some of these people, they know that was a cool thing. Right? You know, and then, of course, because Nashville later, you know, my little boy was in kindergarten with Steve Cropper's son. I mean, it's just such a weird place, isn't it? Nashville, Tennessee. Anyway, so I'm, 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 you know, there, and I can remember, I remember the situation. I remember she seemed really agitated, really kind of moody, and, you know, you don't know what's going on when somebody's life, when they're in there making a record, but she's done this, you know, she's made lots and lots of records. This is the, you know, the lady that sang, you know, just so many amazing, amazing, amazing songs at last if you know that one. I mean, that's the song we put in the little movie that we made of my daughter's adoption when we brought her home from China, right? I mean, just so many kind of stories I could tell about that. Anyway, years later, this, this movie came out, um, Cadillac Records. Anybody seen this movie? It's a cool movie. It's about chess records, about the, the blues label that was up in Chicago. And they tell this story in there. Etta James, Beyonce plays Etta James. She does an amazing job in that movie, by the way. If you haven't seen the movie, it's really great. And she, uh, she thinks that her dad is Minnesota Fats, who, if you, you know, if you know old kind of pop culture, was just one of the great pool sharks you know, of the 20th century, just a legendary figure. And they set this scene where she meets her dad, who she's never met him before, right? And they're in this kind of hotel, fancy restaurant, and she gets to meet him, and, and I won't give away what happens, but it was a hugely significant event for her, well into her career. She's a, quite a successful artist at this point. I remember, you know, thinking, man, that was a kind of a cool story. I didn't, I didn't know that about her life. And then I was in this used bookstore, and I picked up her autobiography, and I started to real, read this book, and I realized Minnesota Fats didn't live in Chicago. Do you know where Minnesota Fats lived? He lived in a hotel in downtown Nashville. Yeah, he lived at the Hermitage for years and years and years. And that experience didn't take place up in Chicago. That took place in Nashville, Tennessee. And that took place the week that she was working on the record. And all of a sudden, whoa, 
now you understand a little bit more of what's going on. No wonder she was agitated. This had been the man that she'd heard about her whole life who had never wanted to meet her. Finally, she got to meet him, and it didn't go as she hoped. No wonder. So often, there's more going on to stories than we realize. That actually is one of the, I guess, core principles you should carry in your life. Whenever you meet somebody, whenever you talk to somebody, there's almost always something else going on that you don't know about. And, and this is a, a passage, I think, that brings out that same kind of thing. These people here in this area, as we looked at last week, the, Peter is, is sending this letter to people who are aliens. They're They're people that don't really fit in. They're scattered in Asia Minor, right? And they are about to endure some intense persecution. Many people think that this letter is sent right at the beginning of the persecution under Nero. A persecution that, uh, if the church history stories are to be believed, resulted in Peter himself being crucified upside down. And we look at this passage and we look at um, Peter writing this letter and we realize that there is so much more to the gospel than we think. I, I think, you know, one of the great tragedies is so many people, particularly in America, get brought up to believe that the gospel is basically the little thing you tack on at the end of a message, which is the part where you invite somebody to trust in Jesus and to pray a little prayer. And in a lot of ways, gospel has been equated with that. And it's kind of sad because literally gospel means the good news that should bring great rejoicing. And there's so much more to rejoice about than just the fact that you can sort of pray a little prayer and go through a little transaction and then sort of say, okay, I guess I'm a Christian now. That is so trivial compared to the bigness of the gospel. So let's look at this passage and we're going to think about how big the gospel really is and why that matters. If you look in your, in your little worship program, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Does it start at verse 6? That's where I'm going to start. Good. Um, We're going to start at verse 6. I know I covered verse 6 already last week, but we're going to pick up on that again because it overlaps with the topic of tonight. Peter says this, in this, and the this is referring to verses 3 through 5. Don't wait. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you what that means. But he says, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, talking about the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, to these prophets, That they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even angels long to look. Let's pray together, and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you 
We do thank you that your gospel is good news that brings great joy. And we pray, Lord, that as we unpack this passage, this part of your holy, inerrant word, that you would bring great joy to us and that even you would preach the gospel again to us in its fullness. Because we need to believe, we need to believe and we need to experience the joy in what we believe. For those who are wondering what this Christianity stuff is all about, for those who think they know it all, all of us, Lord, we need your word, we need your spirit. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the first thing I want to just talk about is is really what I talked about last week, and I'll just do this briefly, but the first point I want to make tonight is that the gospel is bigger than forgiveness. Now, I don't mean to belittle um, that story. I I almost think maybe I did a little bit. The idea that you would just pray a prayer and have Jesus come into your heart, the idea that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus is remarkable and precious. I grew up in, in a church context where that was just a crazy idea I'd never heard of. I remember in ninth grade, the first time somebody told me, you know, you can actually have a personal relationship with Jesus instead of just going to church. I thought that was crazy. I'd never heard such an idea. So I don't mean to belittle or say that that's not a big deal, but I do want to say that the gospel is more than just forgiveness, and it's more than just an individual little transaction between you and God. The good news is that Jesus has lived and died in the place of sinners, and that changes everything. That word good news used in the Bible, was not actually a spiritual word. It was a word generally used about a military victory that would change the condition of the people who heard about the victory. So think of it that way. We've unfortunately sort of restricted it and and, and made it so small and little, and it just becomes sort of preaching the gospel means talking people into making a decision. That's tragic. But not only that, we've, we've made it all about forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness, the idea that Jesus died in the place of sinners so that you can be forgiven for your sins is absolutely important, but that's not all that the gospel is. And, and, and we see that in the, in the first few verses of this chapter. I, I don't know if these are printed, but I'll read you the verses before what I read. In verses 3, 4, and 5, um, Peter says this, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice. So all I'm saying is the greatly rejoicing is about more than just you can be forgiven of your sins. There's a lot more to it here, isn't there? You've been born into a living hope. You who were dead have been made alive. This is Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to go read more about what that means. You've been born to a living hope, and you've been given an inheritance. See, here's the problem, I think, with so many uh, people and their understanding of the gospel, why it's so trivial, is they think that all they've gotten when they come to Jesus is a fresh start. They think, I've been forgiven for everything I've done, and now I get another chance. I remember our, our dear departed pastor, Craig Brown. Not that he's dead, but he's not here, the pastor anymore. Yeah. I know that. I, I, we talked to him today. Well, anyway, I remember the first time I actually heard Craig preach. This was years and years and years ago. 
Um, he was still the senior high director at Christ Community Church. We were on a retreat. And I remember I was given a cabin of boys. Um, I think they were all seniors who were about to come to college because I was the college pastor. They thought it would be good for me to connect with them. Anyway, Craig's, you know, talking and, and doing the main speaking for this week-long retreat. And I'm talking to my guys and I'm in, talking to them about what it is Craig's been saying. And they don't get it at all. They're talking about, man, that was really convicting, and I just really need to try harder, and man, I, I, you know, when I get back home, I'm just going to, things are going to be different. You know, this is typical youth group camp kind of things that, that boys and girls think. And I remember going to Craig and saying, Craig, they are not hearing what you're saying. They think that being a Christian is about turning over a new leaf. And I'll never forget, just like Rick, you know, told that story about that old that older man. I've heard you tell that story. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. But I remember him saying, saying that night, he said, oh, okay, I got I to think about this. What can I do? And I'll never forget. He said, you know, some of you may think that becoming a Christian is about turning over a new leaf. Here's what you need to understand. You're a compost pile, <laughs> and you can stick a pitchfork in it and turn it over, but all you got are rotten leaves. <laughs> no matter how many times you turn that stuff over, you need more than a fresh start. You need a whole new, a whole new garden. <laughs> And that's what we have, right? In the gospel, we don't just get a chance to start over. We get an inheritance. An inheritance that's kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. If you are a Christian, you've been more than forgiven. You've been assured of being forever with God because he shields you by his power. And he has an inheritance kept in heaven for you, undefiled, unfading. It's not going to wear out. I don't care what the stock market does. Your inheritance is set and secured because your inheritance is the righteousness of Jesus. And God has already said what he thinks about the life that Jesus lived. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ by faith, he says that about you. And he's not going to judge Jesus again. It's already be done. In other words, if you're a Christian, you don't look forward to a good judgment. Your judgment already happened at the cross. And when Jesus was resurrected, as Peter says in these first few verses, it showed that everything needed for you to be in perfect fellowship with God was done. Because he's not still in the grave. He's resurrected. That's what you greatly rejoice in. Okay? So the gospel is bigger than forgiveness. It's about an inheritance, not just a fresh start. And the second thing, and this is what we get into tonight, the gospel is bigger than the trials which seek to define our reality. It's not just that trials are difficult. It's that they try to define reality for us. Now let me say this. Trials are real. And so is the grief. I think one of the most important passages in the Bible is in Isaiah chapter 5, where it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And there are a lot of well-meaning Christians and other people who basically try to dissolve the categories of good and evil and say, well, if God is sovereign, then everything really is good just in disguise. You just need to have the right perspective. That's not a biblical view. Good and evil are real categories. And trials are real, and the grief of trials is real. Furthermore, this is not the only passage that speaks about trials. So I want you to be careful, because there is a reason for trials given here, this is not the only thing the Bible says about trials. I'm not going to say everything the Bible says about trials, okay? But I will tell you, you must be careful about assigning 
sort of a one-to-one correspondence between your trials and why you think they're coming. You must always be careful about that, particularly for yourself and even for other people, other people, right? So, but here, here's a couple things that we want to see in this. First, trials are real, but they're not ultimate. I, I see that in the, this word here, though. In this you rejoice, the gospel and the fullness of it, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Though, it means that the gospel is primary. In this you greatly rejoice, though the trials are real. And you've had to suffer grief in them. The gospel is the primary thing, but trials are also real. The second thing that's important to see here. And the reason the gospel is bigger is that the gospel is about an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. And one day you will enjoy it. The trials are for a little while. Now, little while, Peter means a little while compared to the eternal glory. This is not a promise that if you're really a Christian and you really have faith, that your trials will be momentary. Because, of course, you know that that's not true. And there are people in this room that that suffer. I've suffered with chronic migraine headaches for 25 years. Fortunately, there's medicine that helps me. But listen, little while sometimes doesn't feel like a little while. But in light of the gospel and the inheritance kept in heaven for us, it is a little while. So again, trials are real, but they're not ultimate. They don't ultimately define us. The gospel does. And they're not eternal. They're for a little while. And then this fourth thing, third thing really, is if necessary. If necessary. Now you know what's important about that little phrase? It means that there is somebody determining if they're necessary. And that's so important to understand with trials, is that they come from the hand of a wise and loving father. They don't just happen. If necessary. Now, of course, he's the one who defines if necessary. And I'm not saying that that phrase being in the Bible makes it easy for you to accept. But it's so much different than if that phrase wasn't in the Bible. And Peter said, though these trials have come, and I don't know why and I don't know where they came from, but do your best to hold on as long as you can. He doesn't say that. He says that these trials, if necessary, have come for a purpose from one who has a purpose for you. And I don't know about you, but knowing that really makes a difference in trials. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace and many other hymns, had this this wonderful pithy little saying. He said, everything he sends is necessary. Nothing he withholds is necessary. That really, in, in, in two sentences, distills so much of the Bible's teaching. Because it points you to a loving father. It doesn't point you to you figuring out why they're necessary. Because again, while there is a purpose given here in this passage, I'm going to take that up next. This isn't the only thing the Bible says about trials. And there are a lot of examples in the Bible even of people thinking they understand why trials have happened and they really are wrong. There's that great story where Jesus comes upon a man born blind. And and, and some of the disciples say, well, who sinned? Was it him or his father? And Jesus refused to fall into that trap. And he says, this happens so that God may be glorified. Right? Sometimes that's the only answer you'll get. Right? 
So again, if necessary, is so important for you to see because it means that trials aren't random and meaningless. They come from the hand of a wise and loving father. And then we get this purpose, so that. Whenever you see so that in the Bible, you say, okay, here it is, the purpose clause. And what's the so that here? So that the tested genuineness, this is verse 7, of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that, these trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people, if they were asked, would think that this result is not worth the cost. I I remember years ago when I was in seminary school, and there was a dear professor, David Calhoun, amazingly still alive. I mean, I went to seminary in 92, so it it was a little while ago. And I remember even then he was on his third or second, third bout of cancer. And I remember him getting up at chapel and talking about the lessons God had taught him through cancer. And I remember everybody being so moved by that. And then we went to class and Dr. Yarbrough, who taught Greek, said, you know, we all admire Dr. Calhoun's faith, but none of us is willing to get it if it means going through what he's going through. In other words, if you were given a choice, you would probably say no trials and shallow faith. I'm good with that. (laughs) But because God loves you, he's not good with that. He's not good with that. Your faith being proved genuine is too important. You knowing that you're God's child is too important. So you don't you don't get a choice. I don't, I, I, and I, I, I just started to say, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. It's actually not bad news. It's actually good news. Because here's the thing. Assurance, not just being a Christian, but knowing that you're a Christian, is the power to live the Christian life. And knowing that we're truly in Christ is to taste the first fruits of this joy unspeakable that Peter talks about. And this kind of joyful assurance is rarely, if ever, built into your life apart from trials. And there are a lot of other places. If you want to explore this more, maybe you should read Hebrews chapter 12, where God says that all those who are true sons are chastised, disciplined, And you begin to wonder if there's no trials or suffering in my life, maybe I'm actually not a true child of God. And it's sort of like this really fascinating idea because so many of us think the trials in my life are what make me think maybe God doesn't love me. And Hebrews says, no, it's just the opposite, actually. Rather than starting with the trials, start with the character of God, and it really changes everything. But Peter here is saying that your faith being proved genuine is absolutely precious. And, and, I, and this is where that Spurgeon quote comes in. I, I mean, that's a remarkable quote. Spurgeon was a great preacher. Uh, some call him the prince of preachers. At one point in London, England in the 1800s, when he would preach a sermon, they would print it in a little cheap little newspaper kind of thing called the Penny Pulpit, and they distributed a million copies of that sermon a week. He, he, you know, extraordinary man. He, he says this, 
that of all the things that contributed to his quote-unquote success, nothing, nothing is he thankful. Now, this is one of those quotes where you go, okay, I'm just sort of going to take his word for it. I'm telling you, I read that quote 20, 30 years ago, and I thought it was cool. I thought it was neat. I thought it would be challenging to people. But now I still use it because I think it's so vital for us to understand. Because I, I just look at these things differently. I'm, I'm not that naive 20-year-old who was kind of excited that Spurgeon said this cool thing that I never would have thought of. Now I see this is, he's got the heart of what First Peter is talking about here. Joy unspeakable never comes apart from trials. Because assurance can only grow so deep without trials. Now this is deep waters we're wading into here, right? Now this isn't the only thing he says about assurance, that trials equal assurance. As a matter of fact, I think there are two other really important things about the topic of assurance. Assurance is not you being a Christian. Assurance is you knowing that you're a Christian. And I will tell you, it's really important you understand, you can be a Christian and really wonder whether you're a Christian. It's actually, it's actually a really important thing for you to know, because a lot of people in the South have grown up in a tradition where you basically, you know, your right to believe that you're a Christian is only as strong as your sense that you are a Christian. In other words, unless you know the day and the hour when you were saved and you can tell me, you have no right to believe you're a Christian. A lot of people, or, you know, I see... Uh, somebody in the audience here whose husband told me one time they went on a youth retreat and the, the, the point of the, of the sermon for the whole weekend was if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. Now that will mess you up. <laughs> and it's also deeply unbiblical. The Bible never says that the only way you can know you're a Christian is if you're absolutely sure you're a Christian you never have any doubts. But even though you can be a Christian and still doubt, the Bible wants you to have a strong assurance Make every effort to make your calling and assurance real and solid, right? Because assurance is the power to live the Christian life. If you wonder what somebody thinks about you, it's pretty difficult to keep trying to move towards them, right? I mean, isn't this why when you're dating somebody, you're trying to figure out where you stand, you know? It just sort of saps your energy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had this other great quote I love. Where he says, when I thought that God was hard... And a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I realized how kind and loving he was, I smote my breast that I would ever sin against one such as this. Like, it's so important that you understand that you are a Christian. And, and, and in this passage, like, I would say the very most important thing about that, or how are you going to grow in your sense of assurance, is the promises of God. So verses 3, 4, and 5 that you've been given an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, where you can't get at it and screw it up. You're shielded by God's power through faith. Those promises are the basis for your assurance. But there's another thing a little later here where it talks about this joy unspeakable. And there's no getting around the subjective, supernatural aspect of what he's saying there. Not only do you need to understand the promises of God and put your trust in them, but there also is a sense, like Paul says in Romans 8, where his spirit testifies with your spirit and we cry, Abba, Father. That's also a vital, precious part of assurance. And then there's this experience part. 
where the trials expose your heart's direction and show you what your faith is really in. And because assurance is so important, the trials are absolutely vital. They're absolutely vital. If you're unsure of God's love for you, it makes every trial a double trial. You don't want, when trial comes, for you to be trying to then decide whether or not God loves you. That's hell on earth. So Peter wants them to know these trials have come from the hand of a wise and loving father so that you would know. And so you would experience this. Listen, the gospel, this is the third point, is also bigger than what we, than the doctrine we believe. Because he goes into this section about this joy unspeakable, but do you understand, in this you greatly rejoice is the key to getting to the joy unspeakable as you go through the trials. They're all linked together. In other words, you greatly rejoice. You don't just say, okay, good, I believe that, awesome, I can spit it out on a test. No, you greatly rejoice in it. That's not just a a, a description of what a Christian is like. It's also sort of marching orders for a Christian, an agenda for a Christian, that you would not just say, yeah, I believe that, I got it. No, that you would greatly rejoice in it, that you wouldn't be content with just a bare, minimal understanding, that you would rejoice in it, that you would taste the sweetness of it, because the gospel is to be experienced. If the gospel is the good news that should bring great joy, then you should, you should, you should wrench out of it that great joy. Which is to say, you don't really do very well in suffering without doctrine. I know in a lot of circles, doctrine is, is sort of a dirty word, but you can't get away from it here. You have to greatly rejoice. You don't just have to sort of give credence, you know, sort of assent to these doctrines. You greatly rejoice in them. You use them. You thank God for them. You enter into them. You, you suck the nectar out of them, if, we, if, if you would put it that way. So that when these trials come, it's driving you deeper and deeper into the heart of the Savior who lived and died for you and gave you this inheritance. Right? God, the gospel should produce an experience that's beyond what we see. There's no doubt. I mean, this is, in some ways, a little embarrassment, this passage, to a lot of Christians, I think, because they feel like, well, I'm not experiencing this joy unspeakable. And, and all I say is, I take great comfort from that hymn of William Cooper's, where he says, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. There is a joy that comes from rejoicing in the gospel, but then sometimes what the Puritans called God's kisses. Sometimes you know. The Spirit testifies with your spirit that you're God's child. And I could just tell you, most of the people I know that would talk about that experience, it was inseparable from trials. We, we kind of wish it would, go so, it would come some other way. Generally, it doesn't come other ways. There's something about trials, rejoicing in the gospel in the midst of them, and this joy unspeakable that are all connected. And then I want to make one more point here as we're, as we're wrapping this up. The gospel is bigger than the gospels. It's bigger even than the New Testament. 
And some of this stuff I've been talking about tonight, like you really need the whole Bible to understand this. Like if all you ever do is read the Gospels, and listen, if you've never read the Bible, that's a great place to start. But if you've been a Christian for a while and you haven't ventured beyond the Gospels or even beyond the New Testament, it's tragic. It's tragic. I mean, do you ever wish that you lived back in Bible times? I remember when I was younger, I used to think, man, if only I had been there. If only I'd been able to see this stuff. But what Peter is saying here is, look, if you wished you lived back in Isaiah's time, don't wish for that. Don't wish for that. He was, wa- he was longing to understand what you now know. And brothers and sisters, we live even farther beyond that. And we know even more about the goodness and the reality of this gospel. I mean, it's one thing to live at the beginning of a story. It's another thing to live even in the middle of it. But what if you're living near the end of the story? The Bible says we're living in the last days. Not because like the, the, the coming again of Jesus is tomorrow. I don't know. But everything after the resurrection of Jesus is the last days. I got to see this movie yesterday with my wife, Austin Land. Anybody know about this? movie. I won't spoil it, but it's a fascinating movie about if, if there was a Jane Austen amusement park and everybody that loves like Pride and Prejudice and all those things like saved up their life savings and then blew it on a trip to experience Austin land in Austin land. And I think sometimes we sort of romanticize the Bible and we think, oh, you know, man, I wish I was back there. It'd be easier to have faith. Listen, you have what you need in the word of God. But for so many of us, we're trying to get all of this sort of spiritual life and assurance out of just a couple verses. I remember years ago doing college ministry, this guy was asking me all these questions, uh, one after another, and I was, you know, happy to answer his questions. But after about 10 questions, I said to him, said, you know, I could do this for a while, right? I've been to seminary, I've, you know, I've had to do this for my ordination exams. But listen, why don't you actually read the Bible? <laughs> because a lot of these are really basic questions that are troubling you, and you don't have to read very far before you would begin to, to understand some of this stuff. Listen, do you want to know about what Jesus... Listen, you can't really understand what the cross is about if you've never read the Old Testament. Really. Now, you, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian, but I'm saying that your faith will not be very deep if you don't understand what the curses of the covenant are. And if you've never read the book of Leviticus just because it seems crazy, you won't really understand what holiness is and what a big deal it is. And you won't understand what it meant for Jesus to take the curse of the covenant for you. Do you understand that every page of the Bible gives you new insight and new pictures of the beauty of the life Jesus lived and the death Jesus died? Whenever you see God promising blessings for living this way, don't just read that and say, oh man, that just makes me feel bad because I don't live like that. No, you're seeing there Jesus and what he was like. You don't have to just imagine what would Jesus do. You've got a whole Bible telling you what he did and why. And you've got all this stuff about the curses of the covenant that will come to those who don't obey God and don't live for him. And you say, well, I don't want to read that stuff. That just freaks me out. No, that's a picture of what Jesus suffered on the cross. Do you know that you don't e- we don't even know the detail of Jesus being pierced, his hands and feet being pierced from the New Testament? It's not mentioned in the Gospels. Do you know where it comes from? Yeah, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. 
So all I'm saying is, if you want to rejoice, if you want to have this joy unspeakable, it's pretty hard to have that experience if you never get into the Word and you never dig into it and you never try to understand the depth of the inheritance that you've been given. The gospel is bigger than you think. It should produce an experience bigger than you probably are enjoying right now. And God has given us His Word and His Spirit and His people and His table. Because the table says that the gospel is even bigger than can be explained in words. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. The gospel comes preached in a picture as well. And that's what we're going to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the good news that should bring great rejoicing is so much bigger. And we can't even begin to do more than scratch the surface tonight. There's a whole Bible full of wonders to behold. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we dig into this stuff. Help us as we wrestle with assurance and what does it mean. Help us in the midst of trials to even look through them to you, the one who loves us and is faithful. And we pray that you do this in Jesus' name and for your kingdom's sake. Amen.